everybody, this is St. Paul Peterson, and you're listening to the Peach and Black Podcast. Welcome to the Peach and Black Podcast, an award-winning, unofficial podcast on prints. For over 10 years, giving you prints, news, reviews, trivia, and all things happening in the prints world. Featuring the host, Rob S. I think the craziest thing that's happened is when Prince invited me and Captain to meet with him in New York in 2010. Captain. Anytime Prince gets on the guitar and he starts getting up near that top fret, just get ready to blow your head off. Player. Oh my god, that's the Minneapolis sound right there. Toe Jam. There's just layers and layers of stuff going on in his music all the time in every speaker. Find Peach and Black on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. This is Sonny T, and you're listening to the Peach and Black Podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is your boy Mr. Hayes, and you're listening to the Peach and Black Podcast, baby. <laughs> yeah. All right, what's happening, y'all? This is Tony M, and y'all listening to the Peach and Black Podcast. The fellas getting it in. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Peach and Black Podcast. On today's episode, we talk with St. Paul Peterson. From the time to the family, his own solo work, F Deluxe, St. Paul and the Minneapolis Funk All-Stars, and his collaboration project with Eric Leeds, LP Music. There's a lot to talk about, and we catch him just in time for the 35th anniversary of that seminal The Family album. So, I guess let's just kick it off. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, we have St. Paul Peterson on the show today, and we just want to welcome him to the Peach and Black podcast. How you going, Paul? How you been? Fellas, I'm so honored to be on the show again. I I was on early, early, early in uh, your podcast career, but I'm so happy for you all, and You've been hanging in there so long. I'm honored to be on, what, 10, 11 years later? Unbelievable. We're going good over here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Awesome, awesome. The last time you were connected with Peach and Black was, as you said, probably around 2010. It was you, uh, your brother Ricky P, um, a few of your other brothers, I think, as well. Sheila E was on that tour. That was the Prepostrophe tour. Uh, right. And uh, yeah, those shows were really smoking. All these people came together and it was a really unique opportunity for, for Australians, especially to get to see you guys play. That doesn't always happen to get everyone in the one room. And that was really, really true. Cool. The basement. What a great club. Now, are they going to open that up again or what's up with that? That's well, a great question. <laughs> I think they had to get out of that actual venue because it was sold. Okay. Um, but the guy who owns it still owns the names and the rights. And it's been at least... A year, if not more, he's been trying to find another venue and open up under the same name. But so far, we haven't heard anything about mm. it. And it's been a while, so... That's I such a great sometime. room, man. I love that room. Oh, yeah. It literally was a basement. It was great. Mm. Sure, sure was. We played two nights there, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yep. Great little bar. And I, and I think the last time I was there, I went back and just... Uh, nosed around a little bit just to revisit that place but i hope something goes in that exact location had a great vibe and of course being on tour with my brothers and my nephew and my girl sheila it was you know that was a dream come through true to to have her play with my brothers she and i had played together as you might imagine but yeah uh, to have her play with my brothers and my nephew was so like you said so unique and what a cool opportunity for prince fans and jazz fans to see that combination of what ricky does and 
and what my brother Willard does, and and uh, and, and of course throwing in some of the the, the fan favorites. That was uh, it was really a really fun show to do. The funniest thing I remember about that night is because is it Jason who played with um, Michael Bolton's band? Oh yeah. Oh, let me and guess. And then Michael turned Michael turned up that night, and I That's was right. just out of nowhere. He just like walked right past me and i'm just like oh michael bolton and he just like shook my hand and it was just <laughs> such a surreal thing like after watching this entire show it's like oh all, michael bolton, of all the people <laughs> yeah of all the people to be in a show like that but he you know he loves to funk he was supposed to come into my show in la in uh january but he wasn't able, unable to make it so I think uh, he likes that funk. You know, Michael likes it. I don't know if he can do it, but he likes it. He likes it. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter, well, right? Was, well, that's right. He was definitely there in attendance, that's for sure. That's so, really um, cool. And again, coming back to podcasting, you're on our show today, but you've started your own podcast, Music on the Run. What can you tell us about that? Well, one of my, for those of you who don't know, I love to run. And if you would have asked me that 15 years ago, I would have said, you're absolutely out of your mind. I hated running. And then I started running when I was touring with Kenny Loggins, basically just to get to know him. He was a runner. So yes, I would get up. He'd say, hey, look, I'm going for a run tomorrow morning. You want to come? I'm like, no. I mean, yes. <laughs> so I started running with him. He would smoke me, and I, I'm like, why are you doing this to yourself? And then I realized what everybody was talking about. There's something that happens when you run, gets you away from your phone, and, and you can listen to great music. And uh, it's just something you can do while you're touring as well, and it's a unique way to see the city. And so I thought, why don't I do something that's related to music but also focuses on how artists deal with being on the road, how they stay in shape physically, mentally, uh, with their relationships, maybe with their businesses. So we've had some amazing conversations. We started it up. Uh, we, we got a few un, uh, interviews under our belt in the fall of last year, but we were doing our homework and made sure we, we knew what we were doing, at least we thought we did. <laughs> and we put our first one out in December, and I was the guinea pig. I came out and talked for about an hour, and we shoot video as well. Uh, and you can find all that on my YouTube channel. Uh, and, of course, wherever you get your podcast, the audio version is there as well. So I was the first guest, and then I interviewed Steve Miller. And since we started, I've had people like Sinbad, the comedian, Debbie Gibson, Kevin and Michael Bacon, the actors and musicians, uh, who else? Eric Hutchinson, a great uh, artist. Victor Wooten was just on. Vince Wilburn, Miles Davis's nephew, was just on. And uh, Lenny Castro from the group Toto. So it's it's hilarious. But some of these guys that I've interviewed could care less about working out. So we just kind of have fun, and that's fine. And then you know, I'm not. The whole thing isn't geared about how do you how many push-ups can you do. It, it's not about that. It's about <laughs> it's about the hang, and it's about how they survive and what they do while they're on the road. What how have they been on the road and hanging out for so long and, and being, how have they been successful and what's the secret to that? So it's multifaceted, but there is an element of how people stay healthy in it as well. You mentioned Kenny Loggins. You mentioned sure. Kevin Bacon. I did. Uh, Footloose, the song itself. <laughs> I just love that song. I, Nathan <laughs> East on the bass, unbelievable. Nathan. You know that you, you'll you'll hear in my interview with him that I cussed him out. I said, "You realize that every bass player who has to play that in a bar band cusses your name every time we have to learn that part." And he just busted out laughing. It's so he, good. 
<laughs> yeah, he he said he developed that over a period of time. They would rehearse it and sound check for months, and they finally got into the studio. And it, by that time, it was it had developed so far into you know ninety different kind of lines that happen. And when I mm. played with Kenny, he would expect you to know every nuance of those lines. I'm like, dude, really? Does it matter? He's like, yes, yep. it does. <laughs> so so it was fun. Yeah, Nathan East is a beast. Yeah, Captain. I thought you were going to say, isn't it ironic that the guy behind the song Footloose loves to run. But anyway, that's probably just <laughs> latest dad humor. Um, hey oh, Yeah, there we go. He's on the highway to the um, danger zone. That's what it is. Oh, <laughs> oh here yeah. we go. <laughs> oh, we can do this all night. Um, that's true. So, so music on the run has taken off. I've listened to the first couple of shows, actually, just finishing off the Steve Miller one, and uh, have to attest that it is really intriguing to pick apart, not all musicians, but many of them are in, involved in music and and learn some of those secrets, tips and tricks. It's pretty, pretty cool listening. Now, in addition to this new venture, um, right. I'm sure you've still been doing plenty of music. Uh, of so the question that we've got, and me specifically, is around LP music. Oh, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, what's happening with that? But just generally, can you give us... Leeds Peterson our, music. That's right. the one. Yeah, can you give our listeners um, and us a rundown of, of what's going on and maybe what you've been working on recently? Well, Leeds Peterson is is uh, obviously Eric Leeds and myself. He and I went and saw Christian McBride, it must be close to 10 years ago. He was performing at uh, one of our venues called Orchestra Hall, and it was an all impromptu, uh, improvisational funk jam with kind of bebops over the top of it. And he and I looked at each other in the audience and went, we can do this shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, you know, with all due respect to Christian, because he's a great friend of ours. And, and Christian's like, yeah, go ahead on. So <laughs> we, we started this group and we just wanted to see where it would go. And it started out as freeform jazz and and fusion and you know Eric brings so much to the table his not only his playing but his knowledge base of bebop records in in, in his melodic sense you know I I'm kind of a dummy I just play what I feel and what I've grown up around and luckily I've grown up around a lot of great beboppers and they know those records and by listening to them I, I pick up on a lot of stuff through osmosis. And Eric likes that rawness, and we really hit it off. And it's such a different element than the family or F Deluxe. So we had creative license to do whatever the hell we wanted to. We played for, God, I'd have to say four or five years before we started recording anything. And then we said, why don't we just do a pledge music thing or a crowdfunding thing? And we did, and we were able to make a record about two and a half years ago which is still sitting on our shelves because I, I put Eric in charge of the business of that, and he really believes that we should wait and get it distributed properly. And, of course, I'm like, put that shit out. Let's have that out, and then let's move on to the next record. <laughs> yeah. But with all due respect to him, I know I've always been the one running the show in F Deluxe. And he has to put up with me, and I want to show him the same respect he's shown me and let him run the show, and I do, and we'll – I'm sure he uh, has a plan, and you know we we aren't done making new music, but I sure would love for everybody to be able to hear that. And the only ones who have been able to hear that are the ones who basically donated money for, to let us make that record. 
And I'm not sure if you guys have heard that record yet, but it's yeah, Eric yeah. sounds so great on that. Doing those that crowdfunding way, it's such a good way for musicians just to get their product out there. If you've got the audience who were happy to pay money for it, it's, right. it's the best way to do it. You know, you don't have to wait around for record labels or anything else. You just start it up and off you go. It's great. Well, I, I'll tell you, we did. I've personally done three successful campaigns like that, and. The first one was the F Deluxe record. Yep. That was incredibly successful. The fans just really, really embraced that. And thank God they did. I really like that album. That's a great album. Thank you. That was an expensive record to make because we were all flying back and forth. And artwork we were really uh, particular on. And Steve Park was, of course, the guy we we went to. We love Steve Park. Steve Park is so brilliant. One of my favorite people on the planet Earth. And all he wants for any one of us artists is to win. And he'll do anything in his power creatively to help us. He'll give us ideas. He'll give us artwork. He'll say, why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? Do this. And I'm like, Steve, send me a bill. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe. We'll see. Anyway, he's he's one of those guys. So I, I, I cannot thank Steve Park enough for all he's done, not only for me, but so many scores of people that, you know, uh, that I can't even mention. But anyway, back to the crowdfunding. Yes, I've, we've had some successful runs with that, and it is a great way to do that. And as long as you give your fans and friends something cool, and if they really want to come along for the ride, I think it's a, I think it is a good way to do business these days. So speaking of F Deluxe, just really, really quickly, Gaslight came out in 2011, I think. Something like any, that. That sounds right. Yeah. Are there any plans on you know, keeping that going and maybe recording a follow-up? We haven't really discussed it because everybody's been kind of doing their own thing. Eric and I made our own record. I've made my own record and I've got another solo record coming out. I'm supposed to be tidying up a, a record deal out of Europe. Pardon me, but we'll find out what's going on with that once all this craziness with COVID goes through. So I we don't awesome. really have any plans. We try to do at least one gig a year right now just to, number one, so we can see each other because we, we love each other. I mean, I, I love my Susanna. Of course, Bean I see all the time because he plays with me in, many, in the Minneapolis Folk All-Stars when he can and eric and i see each other just because he lives close and he comes over to my you know any major holiday because he's he's really basically my big brother he and i are are old buddies and it's just it's so much fun to be around him he's he's one of the funniest guys i've ever met in my entire life so (laughs) jerome we haven't had much of a chance to hang with he he was able to come and and play with us during the Super Bowl gigs here in 20, I believe that was 18. In fact, I just put something out on my, uh, in, on my social media, and I, I don't know if I've shared it everywhere, but it was a little bit of the song Sanctified from when Jerome came and hung out with us and played with us, and we had so much fun. I will not say that we aren't doing another record because I, I, who knows what's going who on knows? in the world right now. But mm. uh, I would love to think that we would have enough time on the planet to be able to do something like that again. Because I agree with you that Gaslight record is probably one of my favorite records I've ever been a part of. And we took our time and I think we did it right. And I, we bridged the gap between the family and then a grown-up version of the family. Hmm. In my yeah. opinion, anyway. Yeah, definitely. It really captures that sound. And exactly like you said, um, you know, it's got the strings in there as well. It's got that 
family sound, but it does sound up to date and modern. And it's it's you know and, and it's us. Yeah, we yeah. and we you know we've lived a lot of life between that record and the family record and then the Gaslight record. And Susanna is a brilliant lyricist. That's where she really shines, and she's got great production ideas as well. And we we fought like cats and dogs making that record because she's hmm. strong willed, and so am I. And I'm right, and she's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So you can imagine how far that got me. But look, that tension and that love and that brother-sister thing that we have turned that record. I I couldn't have done that record the way it came out without Susanna Melvoin, let me tell you. So I... I hope we get to make another record. She, you know, she's been in the midst of taking care of her kids as a single mom, and she doesn't have time to come over here and spend, you know, two months to make a record because that's not the season of her life right now. And hopefully that will change and we can do something really soon. I I would totally welcome that. Awesome. So there's still hope for a Gaslight follow-up, maybe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Never say never, man. Also, you mentioned um, that you're working on a new album of material or have been working on a new album of material for or under your own name, so for yourself. Right. Is yep. that more in the vein of songs like You Got to Love, or You Got to Love, which came out uh, About a, a year ago. ago? You know, that's a really good question because I'm about halfway in right now, and there's a fair share of funk on there for sure. But you've got to remember where I come from. I come from a bebop family and a very musical family, meaning that I probably will have some songs on there that'll be a little bit more on the the R&B soul type thing and not just blatant straight ahead funk. You know, something with some more chord changes is what I'm trying to say. And honestly, I'm not sure what's going to come out. I've got to set up my studio in my house now, and this is a different, you know, a change of venue sometimes will be a good for someone like me. So I don't know what's going to come out, but whatever's going to come out, man, it's going to be honest and pure. And God, I hope somebody, I hope somebody likes it. I hope I like it. I'll keep you posted. <laughs> I'm not, I have no idea what's going to come out, but you know, there's some, there's a song that I finished that is, I didn't write it, but I, I, I actually produced it for Daryl Hall, whom I had a chance to work with a year ago by on, on a complete fluke. And I ended up doing this song that his bass player wrote for him, and I did it in a dirty, kind of nasty, uh, Reverend Al Green kind of way. So, And I played all the instruments except the saxophone, and you, I bet you can guess who played sax on it for me. <laughs> Mr. Leeds. And that'll be uh, part of the new record. Something in the Water will probably be part of the new record. I've got a ballad I wrote for my wife, but I can't say it too loud because she's sitting in the other room. But we, <laughs> I'll share with you that I, I, we've been married 30 years this coming October, and she's been my greatest supporter, and she deserves a song. So she's getting one. <laughs> nice, awesome. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to it, man. You know, it's gonna be it's gonna be a ride. I I can't tell you what the hell it is, but because I don't know what it is, it hasn't come out through my body yet, and I'll just keep you posted. Awesome. So uh, speaking of not knowing exactly what will come out this year, this year is actually the 35th anniversary of the family album of that release, which came out in 1985, 35 that, years ago. That I cannot even <laughs> believe that. I, I I'm speechless on that one. <laughs> 
it was a different <laughs> lifetime ago, but it was but it was also yesterday. Yeah. My my question about the family album is that it's it's one of Prince's most beloved side projects. Like Prince had so many side projects in the eighties and nineties. But yep. the family album is one that a lot of people like have a real like it has like a little cult following to it, this album and that project. Sure. Why do you think that particular project is so loved by Prince fans? It's so different. Mm. First of all, I think the personnel that he put in that band, he was brilliant at getting such diversity into bands. Not only my band, but you know, many different bands. But who would have ever thought that Susanna, Eric, myself, people I did not know would blend so beautifully in the studio, let alone be friends 35 years after the fact and still making music together. I think one of the reasons, and this is my opinion, one of the things that separates the family record from all his other projects is, first of all, the songwriting on it is is brilliant. I don't think he overthought of it. The poetry, especially on Screams of Passion and Nothing Compares to You, is just unbelievable. He was on such a roll, you guys, back in those days. And then he made the smart decision and listened to Susanna and allowed Claire Fisher to put all that hip symphonic orchestration over the top of this nasty, nasty funk. (laughs) And no one had ever heard anything like that before. It brought a whole new element to his scene through us. I think he experimented with this band by using Claire on the family record. And then, as you know, he continued to use Claire for years and years for all the colors that he added to his project. So... That's my opinion why I think it worked. And, you know, you have a little uh, six-foot skinny white boy up singing funk like that. I think that was <laughs> different as well. You know, it, it, was, it was just unique. So, can you take us back to that time and tell us about the genesis of the group? You know, did Prince ever get your input for the concept of the family in terms of the songs or the local styling? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, he had all that mapped out and you had to align yourself to that vision? Yeah, man. He was the boss. I'm totally cool saying that. I was lucky to be there. You know, I'm absolutely one of the luckiest people on the planet that he picked me to be the lead singer in that along with Susanna. So I'll tell you what I did do as I learned so much about not only how to record, but arranging, work discipline, marketing, and so many different things just by him thrusting me into the front of that band. You know the story of how that happened, right? Uh, Maybe give us a rundown for the listeners who haven't heard the story. I'll give you a quick rundown. When I was in the dressing rooms at First Avenue, uh, which were actually cloths, pipe and drape we call it here, but basically Prince's, Prince's room was one cloth away from the Times room, and Morris and I would be clowning in our dressing room, if you want to call it that, and we'd be trying to, you know, out sing each other. And I think, and this is my guess, I think Prince heard me sing, and when Morris left, he gathered the remaining members of, of whomever was did not go with Morris in a circle at the warehouse in Eden Prairie and said, Morris is gone, all these other people are gone, but don't worry, we're going to start a new band, and you're going to be the new lead singer. And he pointed right at me, and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> 
<laughs> Seriously, I'm like, what? Oh my God. And I knew how life changing that was going to be, even at that young age of what, what was I, 18, 19, something like that. And I was right. This guy was on fire. Everything he touched turned to gold. And this was my, you know, this is the golden ticket. And I just did everything he asked me to do. I was a good employee. And I, you know, I was a good student, is really what I was. I'm no dummy. I knew he had it going on. And why wouldn't I listen to him? You know, he was absolutely brilliant. And it was an incredible time to be around him. I mean, he could do no wrong. And the records he was making, and I mean, just even look at the. Look at the three records he was making at that time, or four records he was making yeah. at that time. I would so be an idiot music. not to go to school. So much music, and, and and there I was thrust into that, and and the rest is history. So right at that moment when Prince points at you and says, you're, you're the new lead singer, right? was there any thought in your head about, you know, did you have any reservations or questions, or were you just like, yes, I'm in? Oh, no. I was a cocky little son of a gun, man. I was ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding me i'm like yes yes let's do this i'm no dumb that sounds like a scream of passion right there <laughs> man. oh yeah can, can you imagine put yourself in my shoes man wouldn't how would you guys react would that freak yeah, you out think, yeah prince coming off of purple rain says you're right. gonna be the next singer in my new band yeah there probably wouldn't be much thought behind your answer then <laughs> not at all so you understand. Uh-huh. Yep, that's exactly yeah. right. And what was the time period between appearing in Purple Rain with the time and being approached to feature in the family? Good question. You know, my I'm not very good with timelines, but and you'll have to double check me. Sometimes I got to go read Dwayne Tundall's book. I think yeah. I'm saying his last <laughs> name wrong, but just to figure yeah. out what I was doing. Dwayne, what was I doing in 1984? <laughs> the, well, let me just check yeah. for you real quick. So he'd probably know the answer better than I do, but I believe that Morris had just officially quit as soon as we were done filming Purple Rain. So this might be between the wrap of Purple Rain and the premiere itself. Now, I'm guessing a little bit on this one, but I remember going out on the Purple Rain tour. I mean, Morris Day was supposed to be on that tour, obviously, and that wasn't what happened. But Prince used to call me on the phone, and I think we had already recorded the record, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and he'd call me and he'd say, come on out. And I'm like, yes, sir. So he'd come out and he'd hit, let me hang out, and he'd have me come and play piano on uh, Baby, I'm a Star. And it was it was an incredible experience. It was just an awesome time. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier about Claire Fisher. And when you were doing right. vocals for the tracks, for example, Screams of Passion, was those string arrangements already created by the time you were laying vocals, or were they added later? To the best of my knowledge, they were much later. Right. Because here's how this worked. Prince would write a song. He'd send it via messenger or courier to my mom's house, where I'm actually sitting right now. My, I bought my mom's house when she uh-huh. passed away. So she, he would send a courier over here. I'd sit on the kitchen table or by the kitchen table plop it in my cassette player, and I'd have to learn uh, all his raw demos. And a lot of that stuff just came out, including Nothing Compares to You, which was so ironic. I got a call, what was it, a year ago from Warner Brothers and said, do you have any comment about the the new release of Prince's version of Nothing Compares (laughs) to You? I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, you haven't (laughs) heard it yet? I'm like, nope. So 33 or 34 years ago, 
to the date I get the same song sent to me in the same manner, except it wasn't a cassette. And I was sitting at the kitchen table at my mom's house and listened (laughs) to the same song in the the same method that I, you know, the same exact version that I heard 34 years ago. I'm like, this is one of the most bizarre moments of my life. And (laughs) sure enough, I mean, Nothing Compares to You came out in that exact form that I got sent to me via messenger at my mom's house in 1984. Crazy. Just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, we know that this family album it was the start of Prince using Claire Fisher's orchestrations in, in his music. And it's right. definitely an interesting relationship they had or didn't have because we know that they never met and Prince didn't want to meet him. And throughout Prince's entire career, it was pretty rare, I think, for him to just send off a track and let somebody do pretty much whatever they wanted with no instruction and then just sent it back and he just accepted what Claire did. And like, that's definitely a unique addition to the family and and Prince music over the years. Like when you heard those orchestrations coming back later on, what did you think after you'd only heard the music as you recorded it and then it came back with all these strings? How did you react to that? I thought it was the most incredible addition ever. I mean, I come from a bebop background yeah, that's what I grew up. You know, I'm the youngest of five kids, and all my brothers and sisters play. And my mom and dad were beboppers, so I I hear things with that kind of a an ear. And that's where Claire Fisher comes from too. And he was putting all this alternate harmonies over these one chord wonders, and it was totally freaked out the song and made it something that it wasn't, and it made it way more expensive, yet yet still greasy. And it was, I mean, mm. I can remember sitting in the parking lot at Felty's, which is a bar we all used to play at back in Minneapolis, playing these songs with the strings freshly put on for my brother Billy, and he absolutely flipped out. It was, <laughs> it, I mean, literally, this is, I mean, and I think the reason that Prince continued to use him and not talk to him and not produce him was because of what he got with the family record. I think yeah. if you start, and I think, and I also learned this from him, and this is psychology. If you try to put a bridle on a wild horse like that, you're gonna, you're not gonna get the best performance from them. Mm. I mean, I truly believe that he left him alone because he knew that Claire would give him something unique that he wasn't expecting and would do something very unique to his music that enhanced in such a way that if Prince said anything, it would it would be detrimental. Well, yeah, like that you makes said, sense? You, try, you try to produce, you know, you try to give some direction to someone like that and, yeah, what you're going to get back then, it's not truly what they do because it's been influenced then. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would be glazed over by him and mm. and he he didn't let it happen. The, the other thing that's interesting about this whole Claire Fisher part a contribution is that being a an orchestrator is something that is un, not only unique but it's it's unique in the world of Prince right I mean Prince is not an orchestrator in that way he's an orchestrator in a very different way so right. um, you know he may have been out of his depth well undoubtedly would have been out of his depth trying to do what Claire and the Claire Fisher Orchestra did and have done over many many decades so you know, maybe it is a good idea, clearly it was, to just let them do what they do best. Um, well, that's than, the same, right. Well, yeah. that's the same concept with Eric Leeds. He never told Eric Leeds what to play because he didn't play the saxophone. <laughs> Eric just, Eric was allowed to be Eric with a couple of guidelines, I guess. I, you know, play here, don't play here. Give me one mm. riff here, give me another riff here. 
but still perfectly Eric Leeds. And and on the other side, perfectly uh, Claire Fisher. You know, give me a song. Don't play on this song. You know, maybe he won't send him a song, but he'll have him on another song. So I, I think... I think the way he allowed those guys to be themselves was brilliant on his part not to intervene. Yeah, and you put that all in the blender and add your voice to it, and then you've got the family. <laughs> that that record. That's what I think, going back to Toe Jam's earlier question, that's what so many things make it unique. But right. there's so many firsts, there are so many diverse elements, and then put all together into one package, very, very, very rare in his discography, I think. So um, it just stands the test of time, doesn't it? I'd like to think so. I mean, you know, it's so fun, man. It's, I get to still play all these songs 35 years later, and I probably look forward to playing those more than I enjoy playing some of my own songs. I mean, it's, the way he wrote those songs is so perfect for my voice and what I do, and that's what was so brilliant about him. He writes better for me than I wrote for me or than I write for me. Isn't that funny? I mean, sometimes you're too close to your own stuff to know what's good for you and what's not good for you. Prince could do everything. He could write for himself. He could write for other people. It is amazing to think that 35 years later, I'm still playing that stuff with as much enthusiasm and love for that music as I did when I first got it. And a lot of those family recordings was recordings with David Z. So a lot of those oh, yeah. tracks were, was that working with David using Prince's guide vocals? Or was there times where Prince would drop by the studio and check how things were going? And if so, was that intimidating, having Prince present while you're trying to record? Well, I was so green at, at uh, that time. I think <laughs> it was a godsend that, that Prince delegated that to David Z. And now you've got to understand <laughs> something. David Z is a pseudo-cousin of mine through marriage. His first cousin is my wife's. No, wrong. His first cousin is my sister's husband. Uh-huh. His first cousin is my my sister's husband. <laughs> there's there's going to be a test here. Anyway, so I what I'm it's trying to It's the family. To, it's the fa- everything's the family. It's all it's, right. it's true. I was I was comfortable with David, but I'll tell you what, David was meticulous and he was a pain in the ass because I come from a and I mean that with all the love in the world because he did the job that Prince needed him to do brilliantly. I was so used to being a bebop guy and everything is an improvisation. That is not what this record was. This record was, Uh here is Prince's inflections. Here's where he growled. Here's where he did a lick. Copy it exactly. (laughs) Pretty much. And look, I did a good job of copying that stuff. But I'll tell you what, David C. was the one who made me do a good job on that. And after about the second or third time through, I'm like, okay, I understand what this is all about. It didn't bum me out that I couldn't, you know, do what I was going to do because it wasn't my party. And even back in those early days, I knew that. And what idiot would tell the guy who just made Purple Rain, no, man, listen, uh, I want to <laughs> sing it like this. So yeah. so David and I did the bulk of that, but Prince used, would come in once in a while, and he would sit and listen, and he would give me some ideas, and I'd sing some stuff. He's like, what would you sing here? I'd sing something, and then he'd give me some direction if I remember correctly. And he was genuinely always a fan and friend and encourager of mine. I don't know if fan is the right word, but he, I think encourager is more than anything. He saw my raw talent, and he probably saw some dollar signs there, too. I mean, <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. He wanted to make that Duran Duran money. 
is what I remember him saying, and it's been all over the place. But um, (laughs) so, and that's totally cool. And I think I followed through on that. And and the end product is exactly what he wanted. It just reminds me of when me and MC were talking to Prince, and he was talking about something, and he was, and he's like, "It's not purple rain money, but it's 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 good money." (laughs) Right. (laughs) I remember him calling me out to Paisley Park when we were making the F Deluxe record. And he didn't want us to call it the family. So somehow he knew that we were all out to dinner and I got a phone call from someone and he had summoned me to Paisley Park. And I'm like, oh, what am I, 20 again? So I went out there. (laughs) We hung out in the kitchen and he's like, so I hear you got the band back together and you want to call it the family. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, we do. I turned into Mickey Mouse. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> no in fact you know what it was it was so different going there 30 years later than it was when i was in my 20s because i had two kids you know i'd been lucky enough to tour with a bunch of pretty cool people and i just went out there man to man and he uh, had to hear what he had to say and he said look man how can you call this the family when you're missing the main member of the band yeah i'm like uh i didn't have a really good answer for that <laughs> i'm like well you know, we, we're not exactly in great communication. Uh, we hadn't been because we had had a falling out. We had been better by that point. But I'm like, well, because, you know, we are the family. He said, you're not the family without me, man. He said, that's <laughs> my brand. I went, okay. I said, yeah. And then I'm like, my wife said, I like my house. I don't want to get sued. So change the freaking name. <laughs> so, we, so we did. We're like, okay. As fans, like all we heard was, you know, you guys were getting back together. And the next thing we hear, Prince won't let you use the name. Now, like you said, the reason that we pretty much got without knowing all the direct conversations was Prince created that band and the album and the songs. And if anything else came out under that name, people would then assume that he was responsible for that music. Is that basically the right answer or was there a bit more to it? He, he said, those are my songs. Who produced those songs? Who wrote yeah. those songs? I'm like, who wrote like, that? Prince, I'm, <laughs> I said, Prince, I'm not arguing who wrote the first record. I'm saying yeah. we want to continue a legacy here. He's like, this is my legacy, and you can't continue this legacy without me. I said, well, Prince, what would that look like? We ended up the conversation mm. that night. I'm like, well, dude, what what would that look like? We said, he said, well, maybe, we, uh, maybe we re-release the record with a few new tracks, I went, sign me up. I will do that. And that it was actually the start of us getting together and hanging out. I mean, once in a while, we weren't best friends, but mm. it was a cool moment, and I'm glad I went in there, and he did not intimidate me at that point. The only thing that intimidated me is I didn't want to lose my house, so we changed the damn name. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, funny because the exact same thing happened to the, the time. You know, Morrison... Um Jelly Bean and Terry, they all got back together and they're like, they're going to release a new time record. And Prince is like, no, you're not. It's going to be called something else. And so they went through their thing. What oh, did they end yeah. up calling it? The, the original seven. The original seven, yeah. yeah. Well, can you imagine? Okay, so check this out. Can you imagine? I understand why it wasn't that big of a conversation between Prince and myself because he was the boss back in those days. But he grew up and these guys were his brothers. I mean, he grew up with these guys. And he's going to tell his friends that he can't use the name. I bet you those guys threw a fit, man. Way more than <laughs> I had a right to. I mean, they had, a, they did have a right to. Yeah. 
So yeah, they weren't they they were not happy. Would I like to call it the family? Of course, but you know I I understand. I get it, and, and respect to him. Uh, we decided to change the name. I just quickly same regard of the uh, strings being added later or whatever. Was the same with Eric's horns? Was Eric's horns all on there by the time you were recording? Oh oh yeah, Eric's horns were there before I was there. Right. I, mm. I think the way it goes is he recorded the record. Brought Eric up, and Eric, Eric could get, you should interview Eric about the timeline. Talk about a steel trap for a memory. He's got he notes. It all. He, re, he he knows what he ate that afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such grilled a blur. To I remember a, that recording session. That was the grilled cheese. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. <laughs> I mean, he, he is that guy. It's freaky. So he will know the timeline, and you should ask him. But I, I'm ninety percent sure he put all the sacks on before. I sing a note. Yeah, because there was a lot of the early recordings. It's a lot of just Prince and Eric, really, putting it all together. So that makes sense. He didn't need any more. I mean, he played every instrument on there except the sax and the strings. Mm. Except for Bobby C's song, of course. Yeah, well, it's hilarious that you bring that up because that was something that I was just about to ask you about, which is uh, River Run Dry, the song, mm-hmm. which, again, has your vocals just like the whole album does. I'm wondering what direction if any, or even what thoughts, if any, Bobby Z shared, provided, gave you for that at any point in time, either recording, during the recording or even afterwards? Boy, I don't recall him being involved. However, his brother was producing it, basically. David Z was producing it. I think what happened is is he had this song that he wrote and he sang and produced and just handed David the multi-track if i'm not mistaken and basically david then stripped things out added things in you know prince would add some things in here or there Mm. Uh, but i think mostly things were stripped out and claire was added in over the top and that is one of the most beautiful string arrangements i've ever heard in my life if you go back and listen to that that arrangement that claire did it just rips your heart out and such, with such cool lyrics, I don't remember what involvement Bobby had in that directly between him and I. But he, I, if it was my brother, I'd be talking to my brother all the time going, how's it coming out? What's going on? Yep, What's he yep. doing? What's going on? <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> exactly. And I'm sure he probably infiltrated that way. I don't recall him being directly in the studio, but I could also be wrong because, like I said, that's so damn long ago. Mm. Yes. Am I right that this that, that track is like the only... Bobby Z track that we know of that's been released. I think it could on be. A, on, a, on a Prince label or what? Yeah, yeah. That I can think of. I think so, on a mm. Prince project. It's interesting because it's some fits. solo stuff that yeah. um, was very well, limited course, yeah. release sort of stuff. Yeah. It's interesting to me because that track fits seamlessly on the record, and yet it's not something that was uh, created by Prince, at least from the outset. So. Right. And what the glue is is Claire Fisher and David Sieb. Yeah. Let me tell you something about what David Z did so brilliantly on that. And I was not around for the mixing portion of it, but you guys and all the fans have all heard all the different versions that and demos that Prince put out prior to putting my vocal on there. That's the stuff that I would get at the house. And it was fully, a lot of it had a lot more instrumentation on it. I mean, take, for example, Nothing Compares to You. There was a, you know, a rock band. That's not how it turned out on the family record. David Z brilliantly 
That rhymed, by the way. Uh, <laughs> he exercised the mute button, meaning he turned shit off. Yeah. And that opened up and let the track breathe for things like Claire Fisher to shine. Yeah. And without David Z doing that, it would have gotten lost. That's why that record is so special. David is a absolute brilliant producer. And I just got the chance to see him at my gig in January at Vibrato. And he is doing so great. And it, man, just to thank him for the stuff that he, you know, he did for me uh, 35 years ago. Uh, and that's what I'm into doing these days is just calling up people that have mentored me and taught me and given me love and saying thank you. Because you never know when I'm going to go or they're going to go. And you want to be able to say that you were able to say what's on your mind. And that was important for me to say that to him. I always wondered who was responsible for that specific decision about pulling other things out and getting that orchestration right up there. So I wasn't sure if it was Prince, but it was always interesting to know that that happened. Whoever did it. You would have to ask the mixing engineer on that. And I think yeah. that was David. Uh-huh. I don't... I'm figuring it's David, but Prince is, is an odd duck like that, too. Those two are two peas in a pod. Mm. David will go for the opposite of what's going on because it's unique. So will Prince. So I'm, it could have been either one of them. Yeah. So, yeah, just um, you're talking about nothing compares to you and the, you know, the the original slash demo version that was sent to you, which later later turned up on the Prince Originals album last year or the year before, and the the version that's on the family, like you were saying, they're quite different. Um, the, the album version's kind of more sparse and um, ethereal, I guess, whereas the original version is kind of more of a band song. The vocals aside, obviously it has different vocals, yourself and Prince, but in terms of the arrangements, which one do you actually prefer? Ooh. I prefer the one that appears on the record. Uh, I, I figured you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and, and let me tell you why I say that. If you if you really dive into those lyrics and you understand how gut wrenching they are, and you hear how sparse and sad the instrumentation is, and uh, along with the the strings that are ripping your heart out. I think it does better justice as a producer to the song the way it appears on the family record. Better than any version that Sinead or Prince or the other 10,000 people who have covered that (laughs) song since then. You know, so I've done that live with a piano. I've done that live with just a bass. I've done that, you know, the way that he put it on his records of the original demo with a rock thing. And I think the way that song shines the most is with the least. Mm. Hmm. You know, that that's my opinion because that's one of the most brilliant songs he's ever written. It's my favorite Prince song of all time. I just happened to get to sing it first. Or I guess second. He sang it first. I sang it second. Yeah. <laughs> you know what It I is hope. a brilliant song. I, any version, either version is, is a great, it's a, it really is a great song. You can't go wrong no matter what you do with the arrangement almost. Mm-mm. Yep, it all starts with the song, doesn't it? Like that version that came out on Originals, it was very different to the 85 version. But, you know, and it was interesting to hear it like really stripped back that way. But I think I probably also prefer the original album version as well when I think about it. Interesting. It was interesting to hear, but yeah. Okay, so on this family album, you've got two instrumentals. uh, Yes, and Susanna's Pajamas. Right. Uh, So, and they're pretty much just Prince and Eric. From what I can tell. that That's it. Yep. Yeah. Which many fans consider those couple of tracks like a precursor to the, the Madhouse project. Now, you not having any involvement in those tracks that, that I know of, do you have... 
do you feel any sort of connection to those not having sung on them? Like, I mean, they're on your album, but you didn't really have any involvement in them. It just seems a, sort of a weird position to be in. I don't know that's if that's when even I a question. To, uh, that's when I'd get to go out and have a cigarette break. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. The real answer is... Um, I think those songs sound like old Herbie Hancock records, which, to uh. reiterate, are right up my alley where my family comes from, my, my Peterson family. So to hear... That's all Herbie Hancock. That's all headhunter shit, man. That's And, and that turned me on big time. So, I, I mean, I finally got a chance to not sing and be the front man and play some of that stuff, even though I was playing keyboards back in those days. Super funky. I mean, I got to stretch out in, in a different way, and it shows you in a different light because I'm a musician, right? So to be able to do that and, and play those songs live once. <laughs> one time. Was, yeah. <laughs> one time was really cool. I mean, it was just a different side of me as a musician. It did not bother me that I wasn't involved with that at all. Mm. So back to what you were very, very involved in is, of course, Nothing Compares to You, which spoke about a few minutes back. I'm wondering how performing that song over the years has changed for you as the lead vocalist for it? Mm, great question. I think that uh, the older I've gotten, the more I realize what that song really is, not only for me, but for the people I sing it for. That song has such a profound effect yeah. on not only Prince fans, but Sinead opened that up to so many more people. And you, like I said, you see all these people covering it because they want a part of that song. You know, Prince hated it when people covered songs, but I tried to explain to him once upon a time, it's like my mom covering a Duke Ellington song. You just want to be part of it because it's so great. Why doesn't she write her own music? She does, Prince, but <laughs> it, 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 you want to be yeah. a part of something that is bigger than you are. You want to touch that. And so for me, singing that song, I never take it lightly because I know how that song touches people. And it touches me, especially now that he's gone. Uh, I feel him more in that, in that song than any other song that I perform of his, either whether it be the family or the time or some of his stuff. It seemed to take on a whole different meaning like after he passed. Like that song seemed to be the song that got played so much around that time. So, yeah, it's got a totally different... I mean, as much of an effect as it had before then, it's even m more so now. People have told me that that's the... That's one of the highlights of, of the show that when we when we sing it and, and we perform that song, mm. it's it has a profound effect. Especially like I said, less is more. So we've really stripped down uh, either doing it with the piano or just the bass. Or I have the orchestrations behind me, and I've just done it with the orchestration before. Oh wow! Just like I did in that uh, video uh, right after Prince died. I, I'm sure you've seen that. That, you know, Suzanne yep, yep. and myself and Eric singing with just the strings. So I performed it that yeah. way as well. So we, we really, uh, that's a pretty yeah, important song yeah. to me and so many other people. So we, I never take that lightly, and it's it's become more important to me the older I get. Do you remember around when the Sinead version came out, was there a, a resurgence in interest in the family? Were people going back and seeking out? Not to my knowledge, nah. No? I was so <laughs> far removed from the family. I hated that version when she came out and i think now looking back at it i hated it because it was her getting the success on it and maybe not right. me 
I think I was a little jealous, you know, because I was a few years out of me leaving the fold of the, you know, the family and, and going out and being a solo artist with some success, but not the success I thought I was thinking. And I, I think the reason I hated that was more so not because of her. It was more about that should have been me, man. You know, I, you know, gotcha. there's there, there's sometimes you got you got to really look at yourself and go, now why the hell do you hate that so much? You might have not been alone there. I mean, maybe. I don't know if you ever got any sense of what Prince felt. With he the hated it too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there you go. Not really. <laughs> Both of you. <laughs> he, he, did, he hated it too. But you know what? I got to tell you something. Sinead, looking back at it now as, you know, with a little salt and pepper, she sang the hell out of that song for what she could bring to the party. It was totally had nothing to do with what Prince or myself had put into that song earlier. She sang a great song the way she wanted to sing it and look at the results. And I said that to Prince in my meeting when we were talking about the families. I said, you must like that. Nothing compares to you, money. He said, it's not It's not about money. Not about money. No. <laughs> <laughs> he gave that one to me. Did you like that cover? Yeah. I said, not necessarily. I said, that's right. I said, but you must like that check. He said, it ain't about money, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sound like him? Well, yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting because he actually started covering it. I don't know if you can cover your own song, but he put it into his own <laughs> set himself. <laughs> so not he must have thought. Yeah. And then he kept it pretty much throughout his career after that. So Sure did. You know, it's, it's, it's wild. I sang it with Shelby at the Opera House. And that's yeah. the first time that she yeah, had sung yeah. it with anyone other than Prince since he had passed. And it was super emotional for her. And, uh, you know, kind of coming back around all the way back to the beginning. I'm glad it healed her and it was healing for me. And, you know, because Shelby's a lot younger than me. So it was fun to see her connection to that as well. It's funny when you say, when you say, does that sound like him about the money line? And in some ways it does, but then again, in some ways it doesn't. I always get the sense that there was this dichotomy between creative success and doing what you really believe in and then reaching the mass audience, right? So going back to Sinead O'Connor's version of that song and that iconic video, which I think you can't separate. I think the video probably did more for the song than anything else, possibly. Totally. It's so original. Um, and so, like, if you're in his shoes and you're in your shoes, it must be an int- a very unique... You guys are probably the two people, the only two people, really, aside from Sinead, that can have a certain feeling about that, right? The rest of us are just listening to the to the song or, or watching that video. So, very, very intriguing. I just had a vision of the Sinead O'Connor video with Paul Peterson at the With front, Paul. The, the camera, <laughs> the tear running down the side. <laughs> oh, my God. I should do that. Maybe that, you know, that's a good something to do with my free time now that I've, I've got a lot of it. And then Sinead will be like, I hate that version. I hate that version. That's, that's <laughs> you know, I've always, people have said, why haven't you called Sinead and, and done that song with her? I'm like, I don't think it's time yet. I, I don't, that could happen someday. But really, I like singing that song. If I'm going to sing that with a woman, I want to sing that with Susanna Melvoin. That's my girl. I don't think uh, Sinead even performs performs that song anymore. So that's probably, that. maybe that's not going to happen anyway. I thought she did on her recent comeback. Did she not? Oh, okay. I know she didn't yeah, play it for a long did. time. Maybe she yeah. brought it back now. I'm not sure. I kind of think she did. I mean, it, this has uh-huh. happened in the last six months, I believe. I don't know where she is now. And she sounded good. I mean, for what she does and brings to that song, she sounded really good on it. 
isn't that a grown-up thing for me to say? Can you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> Just switching gears slightly, it recently came to light with the unfortunate passing of Kenny Rogers that the Prince track, You're My Love, was, I think, from what you've said online, was originally intended for the family. Was that right? You know, it's, it's so funny about that. Susanna sent me a private note. She said, no, that wasn't written for us. I'm like, honey, I know you were dating the dude, but he sent that to me for me to learn because he wanted <laughs> me to record that thing. And truth be told, I did not like that song for us. And I was mm. so thankful that we didn't record it back in those days. I understand why Kenny liked it. I mean, it worked better for him. Did you end up demoing it or you just listened to not it? Not that or? I remember. Not that I remember, but I, I remember him playing the song for me, saying that this was going to be included on the record or the next record, something like that. Wow. And I was <laughs> I like, can't even oh, imagine. <laughs> that's nice. Yeah, it's a very deep intro. Can you hit those low notes that he was going for? You would have in your... There you go. <laughs> I cannot it, imagine that song being on the family. Like, even if you put Claire's strings yeah. on it and, and David produced it, I still just cannot imagine that fitting in in any way. Like, I listened to that whole album of Kenny's just last week with that song on it, and it fits on that album. I just can't even fathom if it was on the family album. It's just... It was a little tongue and tongue and cheek for our record. I that's what my opinion was, and that mm. was that's why I'm glad it didn't get on there because the rest of that record was so slamming that 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 would have one of these things doesn't belong here. It would have been that one, mm. in my opinion. Yeah. But then again, it it wasn't my band. He could have thrown it in there and said, "Sing this song, motherfucker." And, and there's nothing you can do. All about right. It. <laughs> and so, from your reaction of not feeling it, is that how it got from? Going from the family to Kenny Rogers, or you don't know the sort of mechanics of how that. I, 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 I not. There's no definite point at which I said I don't. I won't do this. I wonder if he felt my vibe because I yeah. didn't. I I didn't tell him I, I didn't like it. I probably just didn't go. Yeah, I love this. You know, or something. Oh, who knows? Yeah. But I this was very nice. grateful. <laughs> yeah, I, I was grateful that it went away. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking of tracks that um, people said they didn't particularly like, uh, there was a few songs we know of which didn't get on the album. Uh, Misunderstood right. was one, which Susanna said right. she wasn't feeling. Uh, Feline. I love uh, that. I love I love. I like the song. I love the song, but it definitely fits with like sort of a girl group thing, I think. It wouldn't have gone that well on this album. I think it's too happy. It's too happy, but I love the song. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, man. But then you had Feel Feline, like. and then, you know, the reasons behind that were maybe some of the lyrics you didn't want to, your, your mother to hear you singing. That is a true story, bro. Yeah. Singing St. Paul's My Name, Making Love's My Game. Uh, what, Which what ended up in Holy the... Rock. All, sure half of did. that ended up in Holy Rock later on. Line up a thousand, I swear to God, I pop until I just can't see. Start an ocean on any dry land. All the women say I'm a hell of a man. When I come, it's not bye-bye. I don't give up till the river run dry. I ain't bragging. I got a foot long. And when I use it, it's never wrong. Sleeping pills will knock you up. But St. Paul's love what it's all about. Because I'm bad. Good God. Better than the Wicked Witch. I pet your kitty, your little dog, too. Don't you want to be my bitch? Still knows every single word. Still Look at this. Got it. <laughs> I, I, still, I still know that. And I'm as bad at it today as I was back then. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. But do you recall any other tracks that didn't get on there? No. That we might not know to, about? Not to my knowledge. Not to my Only knowledge. 
Yeah, I I don't have any secrets for you, man. I, th- those are the only three. Yeah. That could have ever possibly been recorded for us. He may have had other ideas, but he didn't let me in on it. Mm. I mean, again, yeah. Susanna and him were way tighter than he and I. I was definitely boss employee relationship for the most part with him. Yeah. That was cool. That worked for me. I mean, that was that less works. painful than being, you know, than what Susanna had to go through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and can you share your memories of the First Avenue show and how hands-on was Prince in rehearsals and musical arrangements and putting together the live show? And what was his reaction after the show, the feedback? We used to rehearse at a place up by where I raised my kids in Eden Prairie, and it was a warehouse, not where we recorded the record, but this was another new warehouse he, I think Sheila E. was rehearsing at the time in Oakland. We were rehearsing there. I remember we, we auditioned a bunch of people for the band there. We ended up re, uh, rehearsing there for months and months and months on end. And he would come in and he would put some arrangements down. I know Jerome was a big part of the choreography, but Prince was hands-on quite a bit at that time. And you know it was it wasn't it wasn't weird for me, so that's why I just don't remember every single nuance of that because it was just another day at work and another day at rehearsal. And so we, we I remember him coming in and he would shape or form whatever he wanted to do, and then he'd go off and then we'd rehearse and we'd you know, uh, videotape the whole thing. He'd either watch it or send it over to Sheila to to you know create some sort of friendly uh, rivalry and 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 I'm sure those tapes exist somewhere and I I wish she would if she has them I'd love to see them they're either mm. with her or in the vault but then we finally get the word that we get to go down to First Avenue and we did what we were trained to do he didn't tell me anything but go out and sing and when I got off stage he literally took me in his arms and hugged me and said oh my god what a great show he was really proud of me. Yeah. That'll stick in my mind forever. Yeah, yeah, because crazy. It, that shows on YouTube, and it's yeah, just forty-five minutes of fire. It's got all, yeah, man, like James Brown elements, and it's just nonstop. You you guys don't even take breaks. Nothing. It's just very tight show. Straight through. Well, when you rehearse it for nine, like for nine months, like we did, it, it better be tight, especially with Prince at the helm. He expected that. And we dug doing that. We like getting it that tight, you know. Yeah, I just watched that. as like It's currently on YouTube, but, you know, it comes up and then it gets taken down and it's back again. But I watched it yesterday and I don't, I'm not sure if I've ever even seen it. But I, I did no notice there was, a, there was a lot of choreography and I'm like, oh, that would have been, that would have been fun rehearsals. <laughs> Especially with a guy with, you know, two left feet. I mean, two I, left feet. I, I, was, <laughs> I was extremely long and lanky. I hadn't quite grown into my body quite yet. And that, I mean, that did not help, let alone, I mean, I'm not, the only reason I became a dancer was because I had to in the time. Mm. And I understood the concepts of what I had to do. And I, you know, they made us look at what we were doing and you made adjustments and you went to dance class. And it's like, this is part of the gig. This is not where I come from, but this is where you're going. So you best figure it out with Take a quickness. It on, yeah. <laughs> so I did, otherwise you'd be gone. So I, I figured it out. Uh, for what I had to do, and he was really, he and Jerome were really good to create choreography that was within my grasp. In other words, they didn't want to make me something that I was not. They weren't difficult moves. They were 
something that would make me look cool. That's what they were looking for. And they thought for, for what they did and what they gave me, it, it turned out okay. Oh, yeah. And then after that, can you expand a little bit on the infamous showdown phone call where you decided to call Prince whilst he was in France shooting under the cherry moon? Tell him you wanted out of the group. I mean, what were you feeling? How did he react? Did the band know you were going to make that call? Well, let me give you a little background on it. And so Prince had gone off to France and sent me to California to take acting, singing, and dancing lessons. And I'm sure he was grooming me for something, but he never let me in on what that was. So I was out there with a studio, with an apartment full of keyboards and studio equipment and taking all these lessons. And I got a call to go into meet with John McClain, who was at A&M Records. He said, come on in here. I want you to produce some stuff on Janet Jackson. I'm like, okay, cool. I'll come in. So I went in. He said, this has nothing to do with Janet Jackson. I want you to come and be on A&M Records. I'm like, you are out of your mind. He said, would you do it for this? You know, creative control, studio in your basement, and about five extra zeros on your paycheck. And of course, I went, Hello. <laughs> and this was all happening yeah. while he was gone and there was negotiations going on and I was not filling him in on what was happening because I'm like soul searching, trying to figure out what a 21-year-old's going to do with this kind of information and possibly leaving the most famous human on the planet for what I consider to be greener pastures, right? So I had to figure out, A, yeah. was I going to do that? What a decision B, to make. <laughs> if I was going to do that, how was that going to go over? C, was I going to get sued? D, and all this all this while, fellas, we were trying to negotiate the family contract, and they would not negotiate with us. They said, sign it or you're done. Mm, wow. In a nutshell, that's basically what it was. There was no negotiation. So, And the, and the deal was jacked up. Yeah. So when somebody puts a few extra zeros, offers you things that your current employer is not offering you, and you're 20 young and dumb and you think you know it all, you kind of take a look at that. And I took a big, deep look at that and ended up making, he called me because uh, I think that his attorneys figured it out. And he said, what do you want, a house? You got to work. I'm like, <laughs> I remember that. I'm like, Prince, I've been working, man. He's like, uh, but I ended up leaving and, of course, he wasn't happy, and that's when months later, the you know the punk of the month came in, and and all that after I'd left, and he was trying <laughs> yeah. to sue me for five million dollars, and it was a freaking <laughs> mess, man. It was wow. a mess. Not my favorite time in my life because not only a was I leaving the most successful human on the planet, b I'd have come up with some shit that was supposed to be hits, and I'd never had to do that before. So I actually threw myself right in that briar patch, and I had to figure this stuff out. And I hired my brother Ricky to help me do it. And we made a hell of a record. It wasn't as commercially mm. successful as I thought it would be. And I, it, there's a couple of different reasons for that. One, the public wasn't ready for it or else it sucked. Or B, Prince put such pressure on the radio people that they chose to play his records over mine. I mean, uh. I have no proof. No, no, but I don't want to. Mm. I don't want to create any false accusations because yeah, I have zero I proof. And who gives it? <laughs> but who gives a shit at this point? Yeah, I'm exactly yeah. where I'm supposed to be. He respected me before he died. We had a lot of great records that I played on during the '90s, and I was in his house. So yeah. there's no regrets there. But leaving was was jacked up, man. That was not a fun period of my life. There was a lot of 
cocktailing going on, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of learning and a lot of pressure on a young man. It, I mean, it, I look at my kids, I'm like, damn, I would not mm. my, want my kids to go through that right now. So there you go. There's a story. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty full-on time. And um, just to quickly wrap up and kind of move forward from there, a bit of a two-parter, just about that period, which I know you said was pretty full-on, um, allegedly, and I don't know um, how close you are to this, but Prince allegedly wrote the song Dream Factory inspired to some degree by that or those events that you just mentioned. Were you aware of that? And, and if so, what, what are your thoughts on that? piece of music or i was aware of it i don't know if i've ever listened to it i mean i can sing you the chorus of it but i don't know anything about the verse or anything like that i would not be surprised (laughs) i would not be surprised and i don't blame him you know looking back i don't blame him for being upset but the other thing that he probably learned from that was to respect and deal with the people that you have on your payroll and treat them fairly you know, yeah, yeah, because we were making freaking peanuts, man. I'm telling mm. you, double platinum record hanging on my wall, and the lead singer and the family, and I was living at my mother's. Let's put it that way, <laughs> right? And look at the journey since then. I mean, you've touched on this in part already, but I mean, look at the journey since then, right? All those years later, you're playing at his house through the 90s. Um, yeah. you're back there, I believe, in you know, around the gaslight time, you're in his kitchen yep. for God's sake. Um, You and Eric go back there in 2015. Um, I I believe he invited you out there. He did. And yeah, and so look at that journey coming completely full circle all those years later. And I'm imagining, you know, ending up in a good place, right? I got to tell you guys that it was the last few years of his life, he and I would go out and hang out. I mean, I finally found a way to get a hold of him, which was usually the hardest part. Yeah. I called him one time and I said, let's go see Victor Wooten. And of course, he wasn't answering the phone and I figured he ended up just being down there. And we sat at a table and we chatted the entire Victor Wooten concert, much to the chagrin of Victor, I'm sure. But <laughs> we, we were chatting the whole time. And, and I mean, literally, he, he said, do you have a mentor? And I'm like, do I have a what? A mentor. Said, yeah, my all my brothers and sisters are my mentors. He said, because Larry Graham's my mentor. I'm like, man, I'm glad you got somebody who can roll stuff off. Of. He said, uh, yeah, he tells me when stuff's not right and I'm not doing stuff cool and you should have somebody else besides your brothers and sisters. I said, why? You looking for a gig, man? You want to be my mentor? He, wants, Maybe. he said, Maybe. Maybe. I said, I said, okay, coach, tell me what you think I should do. He said, well, I think, first of all, you should put the bass down. That's a very feminine instrument on you. Not many people can pull that off. (laughs) What? (laughs) Oh, sure. Sure. So that was what he said to me. And I'm like, okay. And I just bit my tongue. And I said, what else? He said, I think you should play the keyboards like like I had you doing in the family in the time. I'm like, okay, well, let me explore this further. So... He was digging my stage persona, the way I interpreted this. He was digging my stage and persona more from behind that axe because I think it frees me up more to be more of a personality because when I'm playing the bass, I got to play the bass, you know? And so the very next F Deluxe concert that I did, guess what I did, fellas? I listened to my coach. 
Yeah. I did. I, I let someone else play the bass and I brought the keyboard right up front. And that lasted one concert, mind you, but it was it was out of respect that I did that. And I, you know, I'm like, well, he might be right. And he could still be right. Cause I but I, I'm greedy. I like playing all that stuff. So mm. we had a great time there. Do you think that might have been his way of actually complimenting you? Like, you know, we all know Prince had a wacky sense of humor. And, you know, clearly the bass does not look like what he says on you. Like you're, you're thumping <laughs> it and you're, you're funking it all day, every day. So it's almost like he doesn't want to admit when someone's a monster on their instrument, for example, he's not going to go, oh, you're, you're incredible. You know, I, I, we never get the sense that he was that kind of guy. Right. You know, I've never looked at it that way. You could be right. Um, I think he respected my bass playing because I played on so many of those 90s projects at Paisley. I mean, 1-800 New Fun. 1-800, yeah. Uh, Love uh, sign. Uh, Mavis Staples. Uh, yeah. Nona Gay. Uh, oh, Did you ever run that. into him during those 90s? Like, he was very oh, aloof sure. in that 90s era. Was he okay? Oh, sure. No, he, he hated running into me. He would see me and he would do the, <laughs> one of those prints about faces. And But check it out, fellas. If he didn't want me in that building, he could have had me removed. You wouldn't have yeah. been in there. Yeah. That's right. So I and, and and what's funny is that in 1996 when he when he had us leave, I was by by the way, it was my brother who let me in that building. He was the staff producer for Prince, you know, doing things like Most Beautiful Girl in the World, mm, producing yeah. that for Prince, but I was playing on a lot of projects for him at that time. And when when Ricky's job was over and we were moving out. I wrote a letter of Prince that just said, "Look, you and I have not seen eye to eye. I have realized that, but I got to let you know how important my time with you has been and and I appreciate what you've done for me and my family. I thank you. It doesn't go unnoticed. I'm sorry it's still weird between us. Goodbye. Closure, right? <laughs> I get a phone call the next day that says Prince wants to see you. This is this is when I went up to his apartment. He left me waiting for 30 minutes and he then he finally came in and said, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "What do you mean? What am I doing?" He said, "Do you make money in the music business?" I went, yeah, yeah. He said, who do you play with? And then, then I went down the litany of names and he's like, oh, well, do you want to be in my band? Mm. I was like, do I want to be in your band? I'm like, tell me more. Of course I do. He said, well, if you want to be in my band, it's an all meatless band. I'm like, no, 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 bro. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do it. Can't do it. And then we we started laughing. He said, oh, you're going to tell me like Michael Bland, you meet me down at the at the butcher shop, right? And I'm like, pretty much. <laughs> so, and we had, and that was really the start of us getting our friendship back together or whatever you want to call yeah. it. And I mean, if he didn't respect me, like I said, I wouldn't have been in that building. And I respected him at that. You know, I've always respected him, even though I left his camp hmm. there's no there's no doubt what he did for me uh was huge in my career he picked me i mean who can say That's that it. i realize that i'm no dummy I'm, I'm so appreciative of that and not many people on this planet can say that so i don't take it for granted it's a huge part of my life even though it was only three years yeah uh, well you know listening to to you talk and reminisce and talk about that whole journey the experience all the way up until the present day, it's clear to us, I think it's fair to say, that not only were you in the family, as far as anything purple related, I think you were family. And that's, you know, that you're right. It is rare. You're one of very few people in the Prince Canon. And we've had a blast talking to you. So I want to thank you so much for your time and coming on after all these years once again. And um, yeah, thank you. Guys, it's my absolute honor. I, I want to tell you how proud I am for everything that you do for all things Prince related. And thanks for the opportunity to come back on the show. And 
been a hell of a journey just to be in the Purple Camp so many years ago and then everybody's still appreciating what I do and supporting what I do, making new music yeah. and playing old music. It's been a hell of a journey and I don't take that for granted and I look forward to hanging with you brothers when I come back to my second home, Australia. Yeah, come back. Come back cool. down. Get and, the old stuff. We'll, we'll let you bring your bass and play your bass, definitely. <laughs> 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 you let the punk of the month bring his base, huh? <laughs> we, we will allow this. Yes. <laughs> you won't be allowed into the. You won't be allowed through immigration without it. It's like that's how. That's it true. <laughs> All, All right, right, fellas. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate it. Bye bye. Thank you so yeah. much. You've been listening to another classic Peach and Black podcast. Catch all our episodes at podbean.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn, Mixcloud, and all good podcast directories. Search for Peach and Black Podcast. You can continue your Peach and Black experience online. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The Peach and Black Podcast is written and produced by Rob S., Player, ToeJam, and Captain. Original theme music by ToeJam. Audio production and additional audio editing by Captain at Funky Temple Studios. Episode artwork by Reverend. Share our podcast with your friends and Prince fans. If you love our show, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. You can contact the Peach and Black Podcast by email at peachandblackpodcastofficial at gmail.com. <laughs>